Greetings, podcast listeners. My name is Dr. James Cole, and I'm super happy to be recording my first podcast today. I hope that this will be my first of many in the future, and today's will be a summary of who I am and will hopefully serve as an introduction to help listeners become aware and educated to the nuances of the gradual and, in many ways, troubling changes in the quality and in the, the delivery of healthcare in this country. It probably all started about 25 years ago, but the more serious issues really began to show their true colors over these past 10 to 15 years. My goals are to help make everyone aware of these very real issues, which affect one of our nation's few trillion dollar industries, and to propose solutions which just might get healthcare back on track. I've been kicking around the idea of recording podcasts for some time now because I feel like I have a lot to say about a topic that's likely near and dear, at least on some level, to many if not most people out there and because it's what I do for a living. That is, I practice medicine and thus I'm a provider of healthcare. I've titled my podcasts Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, mostly because of the latter parts. There's a lot of really bad and ugly out there with respect to U.S. healthcare. Anyone who's been a consumer of healthcare knows it. Anyone who works in the field of healthcare knows it. And whereas we all want to believe that we have the very best healthcare in the world right here in the good old US of A, I'm really starting to doubt that notion. But there are still a tremendous number of good things to say about US healthcare. Doctors and nurses are saving more lives than ever. And there have been so many advances in healthcare that it's, it's hard to keep track of it all. But there is plenty of bad, such as doctors not making themselves available to their patients when they get admitted to a hospital, or face-to-face time with your doctor or nurse being usurped by a computer screen and a keyboard, and the sad fact that a large percentage of physicians on the verge of graduating their residency training admit that they do not feel ready or adequately trained to practice independently. And finally, the ugly, the prime example of which is the fact that the insurance industry and the third-party payers in many ways dictate how your doctor practices medicine and surgery and predetermines which tests, procedures, drugs, and medical services you're allowed to receive. Over the course of however many weeks I'm allowed to do this or have the intestinal fortitude to continue doing it, I'll be introducing you to various topics and speaking on something very specifically. But for right now, I'm just going to introduce in general what I'm going to present to you, hopefully for the foreseeable future. Now, I would imagine that the vast majority of you listening have no idea who I am, and so the most appropriate and polite thing for me to do would be to introduce myself. As I said, my name is Dr. James Cole. I'm a board-certified general surgeon, also board-certified in neurocritical care. I've practiced trauma surgery, critical care, and acute care general surgery for an entire career. I attended medical school on a Navy Health Professions scholarship, which means that they paid for everything, and in return, I owed the U.S. Navy several years of my life, paying back my loan with medical service. Whereas I assumed that I would only want to serve for no more than the minimum number of years I owed the government, as it turned out, I really enjoyed the structure of the military. I enjoyed the culture of the military, and I felt a great sense of pride serving my nation and the uniformed service members and their families, and so I ended up staying in for many more years than I was obligated but I'm sure I'll talk about that more sometime in the future. Anyway, I graduated medical school in 1991, and I was immediately assigned to serve my internship year at the U.S. uh, Naval Hospital in Portsmouth, Virginia. Following a grueling year, I was then assigned to serve as a general medical officer, a general practitioner, if you will, with the Marines of the 1st Surveillance Reconnaissance and Intelligence, uh, Intelligence Group aboard Camp Pendleton, California. 
While serving with those Marines, I became a paratrooper and a military scuba diver. It was a super cool and exciting way to begin a medical career. I deployed with the Marines to both Honduras and Guatemala, and I cared for the medical maladies of numerous Marines while deployed and while at the military base in California. Following my two-year assignment as a general medical officer, I could have resigned my officer's commission and walked away from the military. I had honorable, honorably fulfilled the terms of my service obligation. I provided great care to those Marines who, came, who I came to know and admire greatly, and I could have resumed my postdoctoral training in whatever specialty I chose somewhere in the civilian world, in a hospital, anywhere in the country. However, as I said before, I really enjoyed my time served in the military. I liked nearly everything about it, especially the camaraderie and the culture of, of the whole military concept as a whole. My wife liked living as a military spouse. At least I'm pretty sure she did. And so we decided that I would stay in the military a while longer and apply to do my specialty training in the field of surgery through the U.S. Navy. Well, I did apply to complete my specialty training through the Navy, but I was actually chosen by the U.S. Army to train in one of their programs in Texas. So this Navy officer, who had just served two years with the U.S. Marine Corps, packed up his home and his family, which now included two very small children, and moved sight unseen to El Paso, Texas, to serve as a surgery resident at William Beaumont Army Medical Center. I served there for an additional four years, and following the completion of my surgery residency, I was surprised to receive orders for yet another non-Navy assignment. This time, I was to move my family, now complete with four small children, to southwestern Louisiana, where I served as a staff general surgeon at Bain Jones Army Community Hospital at Fort Polk, Louisiana. I was also cross-assigned to serve with Joint Special Operations Command, which is an elite military component of the United States Special Operations Command, which I might discuss sometime in the future, but not now. I worked for the Army for another two years, and at the end of the year 2000, I decided that it was now probably time to get out. I felt that the world was a peaceful place, and there was likely no chance that I could ever be needed for wartime support. So on September 30th, 2000, I received notification from the U.S. Navy that I was honorably discharged from duty and I moved my family back home to Illinois, where I worked as a general surgeon and a trauma surgeon. However, less than one year after I left active duty, the United States was attacked by the terrorists. On September 11th, 2001, like most of you, I'm sure, I knew exactly where I was and what I was doing. I remember everything that I felt and I remember everything of that day, I remember saying to the people around me that this was an attack somehow coordinated by Osama bin Laden. You see, I, had, I learned all about the terror cell that was developing in Afghanistan at the time while serving in Joint Special Operations Command in the late 1990s, but nothing ever came of it, as, at least as I knew of it. And so when I left active duty, I assumed that bin Laden wasn't much of a threat any longer. But on the day that I watched the television and saw those planes hit the two towers and then I watched each of them fall... I knew that I had to get back in the military and support the myriad of forces that would inevitably deploy on very short notice. But I was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. My wife and I had purchased a home and our children were enrolled in school. Uprooting them again on short notice would have been a significant hardship to all of my family. So instead of joining the active duty forces, I re-entered the Navy as a reserve medical officer. Having worked previously with Joint Special Operations Command and having supported SEAL teams along the way, I was assigned to a Navy Reserve SEAL team, which quickly led to my being reassigned to the most elite of active duty SEAL teams with whom I deployed to Afghanistan. While on deployment, I accompanied the Navy SEALs on real-world missions and I took care of all of the casualties. 
I cared for U.S. service members, for Afghan National Army soldiers who were fighting with us, for Afghan civilians, and for the terrorists who wanted me dead. As a physician and surgeon, I had an obligation to provide the best care possible to everyone regardless of the situation, and so I did. Following my return home, I resumed my job as a civilian trauma and general surgeon, and I continued to drill with my SEAL Team Reserve Unit. But in the year 2007, I was reassigned to the U.S. Marine Corps, and I was given orders to, to deploy with a unit from Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and they were all headed to Iraq. War had been ongoing for several years, and they needed a field-savvy surgeon to lead a tent-based team of doctors, nurses, and corpsmen outside of the relatively safe, well-guarded military compound. While in Iraq, my team provided medical and surgical support out of various camps and combat outposts all over the country during the surge of Al-Anbar. Following that second combat tour, I again went home, I again worked as a civilian surgeon, and I now drilled with the Marine Corps Reserve Unit. The Marines sent me to a few other interesting places over the years all over the world where I served as lead surgeon or officer in charge of other tent-based teams in various desolate and godforsaken places. But in late 2013, I received my third set of combat duty orders. This time I was assigned to serve with Marines from Camp Pendleton, California, and to deploy to Helmand Province, Afghanistan, where I was assigned to be the head of all medical matters in the entire region. Whereas I didn't serve primarily as a surgeon, I gained a tremendous amount of experience as a military leader, as a chief medical officer, and as a problem solver in one of the most austere, unstable, and medically underserved parts of the world. Serving in that role really opened my eyes to the issues and to the problems that we face back home within our own healthcare system. Whereas we had so many problems to solve in Afghanistan, we did just that. We solved them. For the most part, that is, we solved them. I, I mean, Afghanistan will never be the U.S. It can never be the U.S. and it probably never should be the U.S. When gauging any project or accomplishment, accomplishments uh, made in Afghanistan, one can only judge the success when viewed through the Afghan lens. If an Afghan would see it as successful, then it was successful. It took me a while to develop that Afghan lens, so to speak, as I had for so many years seen everything through an American eye, understandably. But when I got home and began to critique our own healthcare system as seen through my American lens, I started to see one type of healthcare problem after another. I saw problems with access to care, with coordination to care, with lack of primary care physicians taking ownership of their patients' well-beings, and so on and so on. For example, following my return from my third combat deployment, I was recruited away from my Chicago area trauma job and I, I uh, worked for a major university health system to lead and develop the trauma and general surgery program at one of their division hospitals just south of the Illinois-Wisconsin border. Being an employee of the university, I had excellent health insurance coverage, or so I assumed. Well, one day I developed severe vertigo. For those of you who have ever, who've never had vertigo, it can really be quite disabling. It was really a problem for me because despite my taking a number of medications trying to quell the overwhelming dizziness and nausea, I was for the most part barely even able to stand upright. I knew that I needed to see a doctor and I asked one of the ear, nose, and throat physicians on staff at the hospital where I worked if she would see me. Of course, she said that she would, but when I tried to register myself as a patient to be seen, to be seen at the hospital where I worked, at the hospital which is a division of the major university health system which employs me, I was told that I was ineligible for care. Why was I ineligible for care? It was because the hospital simply never approved my university health care plan, my upper tier, more expensive than usual plan, by the way. I called the local hospital administration to explain my conundrum, assuming that they would surely correct this obvious oversight allowing me to receive care. 
but instead of receiving the help I needed, I was told that my request would have to be reviewed by a number of people that would likely take a very long time, and for the foreseeable future, I would remain ineligible for care. As you might imagine, I was pretty upset. I was a bit shocked that someone would deny a fully insured employee and faculty professor of the university, which remains the overarching authority of the entire healthcare system, access to care. But they did. And to this day, several years later, I am still ineligible for care at this hospital. But that's not even the most outrageous part of it all. When I called the university health care plan to see where I was eligible to receive care, I was told that I could receive care virtually at every other hospital or clinic within a 100-mile radius of me, every single one but the one where I worked. Now, don't mistake my personal frustration with being denied access to care as an overall condemnation of every aspect of the U.S. healthcare system, because that's simply not the case. In fact, I still receive great pleasure on most days taking care of patients in the clinic, in the ER, on the hospital ward, in the intensive care unit, and most especially in the operating room. I've been a surgeon for more than two decades, and for the most part of my career, I've been an emergency surgeon. In fact, I wrote a book of memoirs entitled Trauma, My Life as an Emergency Surgeon, first published by St. Martin's Press in 2011. And that book describes what I feel has been an extremely rewarding and blessed career. But I'm, I'm getting let down more and more. But let me put that part on ice for a bit, because there's a lot of good things to say about healthcare in America. For starters, people are living longer and are either being cured of their disease entirely or treated so successfully that they barely even know that they were once sick. Whereas HIV and AIDS used to be one of the most frightening diagnoses one could possibly ever imagine receiving, the once inevitable death sentence is now highly treatable with pill medications which hardly even make one aware of his diagnosis. Hepatitis virus, one version of which eventually results in relatively incurable liver cancer in roughly one-fifth of those afflicted, is now completely curable with an outpatient course of therapy. Drugs, which specifically target aspects of the immune system, are successfully treating once universally disabling diseases, such as Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis. Similar new drugs also prevent organ rejection with much greater success, allowing patients who have received a liver, a kidney, or a heart transplant to live much longer and much healthier lives. Advances in imaging technology have exploded exponentially, allowing physicians with a trained eye to virtually see a patient's internal anatomy with such precision and detail that exploratory surgery is rarely needed these days. Whereas it was quite common for anyone who suffered a heart attack to die shortly thereafter, people are now living for decades because of minimally invasive coronary artery stenting and advanced medical therapies. Even open-heart surgery is becoming a rarity these days as cardiologists can now accomplish the same successes through a puncture site in the groin as heart surgeons once achieved through major bone-splitting chest surgery. Gynecologists, urologists, and general surgeons who once could only remove diseased abdominal organs via large incisions are now often able to accomplish the same or even better results with keyhole incisions performing laparoscopic or robotic surgery. Diabetic patients who historically found themselves the victims of kidney failure, blindness, or limb loss about 20 years after diagnosis are now living seemingly normal lives due to amazing advances in continuous self-monitored glucose management and insulin pump therapy. Huge advances in the understanding and treatment of a multitude of different cancers has led to an increased survival in countless patients. Babies born far too early, who in decades past could never have survived, are now being kept alive and given a chance to flourish when born even three months too soon thanks to advances in neonatal intensive care and pediatric surgery. And whereas all of those examples given are part of what I would call the good of healthcare in America, I barely even scratched the surface 
as there have been too numerous to count advances in healthcare, which still make America a great place to provide and to receive healthcare. But as I mentioned, there is the bad and there is the ugly, which over my series of future podcasts, I will discuss in great detail. But first, let me share with you the historical context from where I get my perspective of healthcare in America. And that is my father, also named Dr. James Cole, now deceased, with the legacy of being a compassionate, caring physician who gave his patients all of the time that was necessary to render the correct diagnosis and treatment of all of the simple and complex ailments which afflicted those who sought his care. My dad loved practicing internal medicine. In fact, he relished the patients who presented with unusual, complex, and not so straightforward complaints. He began practicing medicine in the early 1960s when there were no CT scans, no MRIs, and a very limited number of medications available for use, and there was very limited lab testing. Whereas there were cardiologists, pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, and a number of other medical specialists within the northwest suburbs of Chicago where he practiced medicine, there were so few of them that it would be nearly impossible for most patients to see a specialist unless the circumstances were extremely unusual. Thus, the primary care doctors, such as family physicians, provided nearly all treatment to their patients. Family doctors provided what we used to call cradle-to-grave care. They delivered babies, they cared for them as they grew into children and then teenagers. They provided all of their male and female adult care as they aged further. They cared for them in their middle-aged years, and they even took care of them when they entered the nursing home, assuming that the doctor was still alive and practicing medicine. My dad, being an internist, which at the time was considered an adult medical specialist, had a huge following of patients in the region. He also cared for patients referred to him from family physicians who needed someone to treat a patient's recent heart attack, to manage undiagnosed liver disease, to care for someone hospitalized with a rare and unusual infection, or to help make a diagnosis in an unusually complicated patient. My dad had two partners, and the three of them managed every single one of their patients at all times. Someone in the group of the three was always on call, and if any one of their patients had a problem or a concern at any time, day or night, they would call the physician on call and my dad or his partners would care for them. Often, the patient's problem could be managed over the phone because both patient and doctor had a well-established doctor-patient relationship. But sometimes a patient needed to be seen urgently. If it was during the light of day, my dad or a partner would slip that patient in somewhere between the others scheduled, work up that patient's condition, and either prescribe treatment or admit the patient to the hospital if necessary. And if someone was admitted to the hospital, it was my dad who served as the attending physician throughout that patient's hospital stay. After all, he knew most of his patients for years. He knew their idiosyncrasies. He knew their concerns. He knew all of their previous issues and problems, and he knew what was bothering them currently. Who could possibly provide better, more thorough coordination of care to that particular patient than my dad? Some shift-working hospitalist who had never even seen this patient before, who had no intention of ever seeing the patient following hospital discharge? No. The best, most appropriate person to coordinate care for that particular patient was my dad, and the most appropriate doctor to care for any patient at that time was his own primary care physician. So my dad, like every other physician at that time, completely and totally managed his patients. Back when my father first started practicing medicine, in cases where a patient had some sort of emergency, it was the primary care physician who met his patient and cared for him in the ER. Back then, there was no such thing actually as emergency medicine physician. Even in the earliest 1980s, when I worked as an ER technician, most of the doctors who worked in the ER were not emergency medicine specialists, but family physicians, internal medicine doctors, or even surgeons who chose to work in the ER rather than have their own practice. 
There were a few residency-trained, board-certified emergency medicine physicians, but even when they staffed the ER, many patients who presented for emergency care were actually treated by their own primary care physician who came in from home or from the office to treat his private patient. My dad loved the unusual and complicated cases. Remember that there was no advanced imaging at that time, which could look inside the body and see what was wrong. There were no panels of sophisticated tests, which could be sent off to render a cookbook diagnosis after just three days. And there was very little invasive testing, including no colonoscopies and no routine coronary angiography. So how does a doctor make a diagnosis when there's no CT scanner, no MRI machine, and no rapid panel of blood tests available? That's a question that perhaps a large percentage of our most recent generation of physicians might have difficulty answering. But the answer, my friends, as to how a doctor makes a diagnosis without relying on a bunch of egregiously overpriced tests is the seemingly lost art of the history and physical exam. I can remember during my first year of medical school attending a class called Introduction to Clinical Medicine. Having spent countless hours and all of my other medical school classes up to that point learning anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, and a whole host of other basic science-related material, I was eager to learn something that might excite me and actually teach me how to be a doctor. I envisioned that I would be learning how to order what type of CT scan or nuclear medicine study and perhaps learn how to interpret various fancy and sophisticated lab tests or imaging studies. I thought that maybe we would learn all the different types of lab panels, specifically which clusters of abnormalities on the lab tests most likely represented what particular type of disease. But instead of being wowed in the way I'd hoped, the older physician who taught that class instead told us that 80% of your diagnoses can be made simply by performing a complete and thorough history and physical exam. I listened. I was tremendously underimpressed at the moment, but I listened on. He then told us that the rest of our diagnoses will be confirmed with laboratory and x-ray information, which we may choose to obtain thereafter. At first, I thought I was being duped because I really did think that CT scan and lab tests were the most important elements in making a diagnosis. But by the end of his lecture, I'd become a believer. And during my internship, during my years of practicing as a military general medical officer, during my surgical residency, and for most of my career as a trauma and general surgeon, I was able to gain a tremendous amount of information and in most cases come up with the correct diagnosis purely based on my history and physical exam findings. Being an internist, my dad was the master of the history and physical examination. It's not that he didn't order lab and x-ray tests because he did, but unlike so many who practice medicine these days, he never shotgun ordered a huge panel of expensive screening labs and CT scans when a diagnosis could easily be made simply by talking to the patient and by examining the patient. But I'm digressing. The reason why I told you about my dad and how he practiced medicine is because I remember those days and I've seen how healthcare has changed over the past 40 years. I started working in the emergency room in 1981, and that means that I've been working in the healthcare field for 39 years. Whereas I've only been a physician for 29 years, I've been in the business for 39 years. And considering the fact that I distinctly remember going with my dad on house calls when I was really young, and since nearly all of our dinner conversations between my dad and my registered nurse mother centered on the interesting patients he treated in the office and the hospital that day, I have been a personal witness to the past and to the changes in healthcare through today, and I have been the witness for nearly half a century. I already mentioned a number of areas in healthcare which are clearly so much better than they were in decades past, but what about the bad and what about the ugly? Well, for starters, as I already alluded to, primary care doctors are certainly not, well, 
certainly not the same as they once used to be. I wanted to say not as good as they once were, or not as thorough as they once were, or perhaps not as comprehensive, but all those descriptors might be interpreted as really insulting. So instead, I'll just stick with, they're just not the same as they once used to be. In many cases, the primary care doctor is not even a doctor, but is actually a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. Now, I have no major issues with nurse practitioners or physician's assistants substituting as primary care provider physicians as the differences in care rendered seem to be relatively unrecognizable to me these days. That is, the physicians who are once the champions of the history and physical, who once coordinated the care of their entire panel of patients, both in the hospital and in the office, and who took ownership of their patients' healthcare needs from cradle to grave, are often now merely glamorized referral agents and data acquisition specialists. Whereas primary care physicians were once full-service doctors, most no longer fulfill that definition. And so that begs the question, which could lead into a whole new topic, who, if anyone, is actually managing your health care? As I just mentioned, that person unequivocally once was the primary care physician. Back in the day, everyone had a primary care physician who you saw as often as you needed to. And when you saw your primary care doctor, he or she always knew exactly what you needed or to whom you needed to be referred. Whereas one used to be able to see the same primary care physician for decades, changes in healthcare management now often group patients into teams of doctors, advanced uh, practice nurses, registered nurses, and medical assistants, all of whom manage the entire cohort of patients. Thus, no one patient is really being managed by anything or anyone anymore, and an actual doctor may not even be aware of a patient's concern or needs. It's not at all uncommon for a patient who becomes too sick to be managed as an outpatient to be referred by an after-hours call center nurse to go to the ER where the patient is evaluated and admitted to the hospital, treated by a hospital completely unattached to the patient's own doctor, and discharged without the primary care doctor ever even knowing that the patient was too sick to be seen in the office. This last point, specifically about primary care doctors no longer caring for their patients when hospitalized, is a topic which really irritates me and, in fact, may be one of the biggest failures in healthcare of this new millennium. So I've introduced my disappointment in primary care doctors well enough for now, but I'm also so disappointed in so many patients who have completely disregarded their own health issues and have allowed themselves and their medical conditions to get so far out of control there are so many patients out there who, who seem to have completely distanced themselves from any semblance of personal responsibility. For example, let's, let's briefly talk about obesity. I am most alarmed by the absolutely out-of-control rise in obesity. Whereas when I was in my teens and 20s, I remember seeing an occasional person who we would now call morbidly obese. But these days, it seems that every other person admitted to a hospital is obese, morbidly obese, or super morbidly obese. And with obesity comes a rise in poorly controlled and often out of control diabetes, which often leads to heart disease, stroke, stinking, rotting, necrotizing skin and soft tissue infections, and a whole host of other serious and often life-threatening problems. I do mostly blame irresponsible patients for a lot of the out of control healthcare conditions they get themselves into, but I also put a share of the blame in the primary care physicians, or lack thereof, who fail to talk to their patients, to educate them, to take ownership, and to effectively manage the patients assigned to them. This is bad. Unrealistic expectations is another very serious health issue. This too is bad, whereas it was once accepted that when a patient got sick, they often died. However, the assumption in nearly all situations these days is that no matter how sick someone becomes or how critical the condition of a patient and no matter how old a person may be, surely doctors will be able to keep them alive and surely their loved one will not die. But of course, this is fantasy. And the absolute truth is, of course, everyone eventually dies. 
And depending on how well patients and their families accept that reality, inevitable death can come peacefully, gently, and compassionately, or it can come with a lot of unnecessary pain and suffering. Unfortunately, family members unable to come to terms with a patient's or grandparent's potential death may subject a terminal patient to unpleasant or even painful procedures, treatments, and surgeries, despite it all being against the will of the dying patient, and in many cases, it's a totally futile endeavor. So why does this atrocity happen? It's because patients are afraid to talk about what they are thinking and what they want. Family members don't even want to think about it, and too many doctors don't even want to talk about it. If only patients, their primary care physicians, and patients' family members discussed end-of-life issues in the many years prior to a terminal crisis, expectations could be managed so much better and dying patients could be cared for on a much more compassionate level. Perhaps one of our biggest problems with healthcare in America may be how we educate our physicians and surgeons and how we prepare them to practice independently following completion of their residency training. This is quite serious and can either be considered bad or ugly depending on how you see it. Now, I fully admit that the manner in which medical students and residents were trained back in my day was not optimal. We did receive an excellent education at the expense of our own personal health and well-being. The near ubiquitous time commitment was, was uh, also placed a medical student or surgical resident's spousal relationship in constant jeopardy as neglected loved ones felt terribly abandoned. But following the completion of that egregious period of sleep deprivation and grueling training, the vast majority of us who completed our residency were fully prepared to practice independently. But significant changes which took place in the early 2000s, changes which promoted a paradigm of work-life balance, which restricted the number of hours a medical program could keep a student, intern, or resident in the hospital, and how many hours of training could work per week. This effectively decreased a resident's overall in-hospital learning by approximately one-third. In the case of a surgery resident, these educational limitations translate to nearly 10,000 fewer total training hours over the course of one's five-year surgical residency. There is no question that a substantial number of graduating residents no longer feel prepared to practice in their chosen area of medicine or surgery following completion of their residency, and thus may enter specialty or subspecialty training to gain additional confidence, experience, or skill or in many cases to require the basic training which they never got along the way during their regular residency years. An area of healthcare which actually embarrasses me is mental health care, and this problem is downright ugly. I feel that we as a, as a nation have completely dropped the ball on this, making access to mental health care inordinately difficult and at times impossible. For whatever reason, very few graduating medical students are going into psychiatry residency programs. Thus, there simply are not enough psychiatrists to care for those who need them. Fewer and fewer hospitals have mental health floors, and it can be nearly impossible to get a psychiatrist to see a patient admitted with a medical or surgical problem. But who is actually dealing with mental health care crises? The percentage of patients out there with at least one mental health care diagnosis is huge, yet most of them are not being cared for by a mental health care professional. We need more and more of our best and brightest doctors to pursue their specialization in psychiatry or mental health. We need to destigmatize mental health care in general, and we need to make it easier for those with mental illness to receive compassionate care. This is a huge topic, and I'll need to go into this in great depth uh, on some further podcast. If anyone asks any doctor, nurse, or medical technician what they hate most about their job, I imagine that greater than half would say it's the electronic medical record or the EMR. Whereas one might assume that an electronic medical record must be a good thing, those of us enslaved to using these egregiously cumbersome, user-abusive systems typically describe them as bad or ugly. 
Most of us really, really hate this. Why? Because much of it, it's such an unnecessary waste of time. And often the information in these systems is actually inaccurate. As humans rush to complete their burdensome computer notes, they often click on the wrong box or simply enter something in error, but perhaps they don't recognize what they've done. And thus inaccurate data is now part of the medical record, which may be passed along for many other physicians to review or nurses to review until someone someday might recognize the error and correct it, but that often doesn't happen. Whereas the concept of a central repository of detailed healthcare information, where anyone treating a patient has immediate access to a patient's past medical history, current medications, allergies, test results, and any of the you know other important information is extremely enticing. The reality is that the EMR serves as more of a data collection box for insurance companies and third-party payers. Not only does the EMR take physicians and nurses away from their patients, the amount of unnecessary and burdensome computer work required of these electronic medical records has been identified as a direct contributor to the increasing problem of physician burnout and physician suicide. Health insurance in and of itself is a complicated topic that some consider good, others bad, and some just plain ugly. Whereas health insurance used to be something that kept us out of the poorhouse, should we have a medical problem requiring a lengthy hospitalization, these days, health insurance premiums can be enough to drain one's pockets. And then there's the high deductible, often in the form of many thousands of dollars, which much must be paid before insurance will even pay a dime. And then there are the co-pays and the patient share of the bill, which insurance doesn't cover. And of course, God help you if you accidentally go to an out-of-network provider or receive a surprise bill for a contracted physician's fee, say a radiologist or an ER doctor, and you're forced to pay out-of-pocket for care you thought was covered but is being denied by the insurance company. And it's insurance companies who often dictate where a patient can and cannot receive health care. Remember when a past president assured us all that changing health insurance companies would not require a change in our doctor? Well, that's simply not true. In many ways, it's the insurance company that dictates how medicine is practiced, and that is simply not acceptable to me. Okay, at this point, I believe that I've introduced the topic sufficiently, and by now I hope that you understand that we do have a problem with healthcare in America, and there's a, there's a lot of bad and ugly out there, but all of which I believe can be corrected. Again, we have many, many excellent and dedicated doctors, nurses, and technicians of every variety in this country, but the system has morphed into something less than desirable for many patients and their providers. I could give many more examples of what has become broken, how we might endeavor to fix these problems, and in fact, I plan on devoting entire podcasts to each of the examples given and more, but today I merely wanted to introduce myself and the topic and to let you all know of my future plans. So I hope that you all enjoyed my initial podcast and perhaps you might listen to my next subject on Healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm Dr. James Cole, and I thank you for listening.